Welcome to the Quadcast, a Yale Divinity School podcast series focusing on issues related to religion, culture, and politics. In this episode, YDS alum Emily Judd interviews Professor Jamil Drake, Yale Divinity School Assistant Professor of African American Religious History. Professor Drake challenges the idea that religion must be kept out of American politics. We have historical data where religion is playing an important role in strengthening democracy. He argues that certain religious frameworks are contributing to misperceptions about poverty and poor populations. We're interested more so in a set of bad behaviors, bad conduct, rather than thinking about the social structures. And Professor Drake discusses how economic issues are being used to try to unite Americans across racial and religious divides. They're trying to use the economy or they're trying to use class to mobilize people across the racial divide. As a historian, you have studied and analyzed the dynamics between race and religion in American history. How do you see the role of religion at play in the current American political climate, especially ahead of those 2022 midterm elections? Yeah, no, that's a great question, and thank you for uh, asking it. So religion has played and will continue to play a huge role in the 2022 midterm elections. The most obvious and the most apparent example is the Republican primary, right? Where we're seeing this term around uh, Christian nationalism, this idea that America is in some ways a Christian nation. Now, this is nothing new under the sun, right? I mean, we can think about in American history, we can think about the Cold War after World War II, where this kind of Christian nationalism really comes to the fore against a quote-unquote godless communism, right? But we're seeing a resurgence, particularly in the Republican primary, with those who are in some ways trying to mobilize or galvanize a conservative voting bloc around this idea that America is a Christian nation under one Christian evangelical God. And so people will go to the midterms uh, for the candidate um, with their kind of religious beliefs and religious practices in mind as they're thinking about a candidate, particularly those who ascribe to the idea that this is exclusively a Christian nation. Now, in 2015, Politico, the news organization, published an article and it was titled, Religion is Disappearing, That is Great for Politics. And in the article, they argue that religion has no place in the political sphere and that the less religion in society, the better political systems will operate. What are your thoughts? Do you think that religion can play a healthy role in U.S. politics? And if so, what would that look like? No, absolutely it can. Um, And I actually disagree. I think we have historical examples. We have historical data where religion is playing an important role in strengthening democracy, right? And playing a very vital role in our public life, particularly as it relates to uh, human freedom, human rights, human justice, human equality, right? And so we have examples, whether historically, whether we're talking about religion as fueling movements or social movements against slavery, against colonialism, against, you know, uh, 
against internment camps in World War II, against anti-immigration laws, you know. Um, we think about religion in civil and human rights. Are religion playing a role in the sort of uh, against, we think, against the apartheid in South Africa? So there's a way in which, you know, we have historical examples that actually counter or challenge this idea that religion can't play a vital, healthy role in American democracy. It actually can. And just just as we have historical examples, right, we also have contemporary examples today where religion is playing a significant role in uh, reproductive justice movements, where religion is playing a particular role in, let's just say, the poor people's campaign, right? Our religion is playing a particular role in uh, thinking about, you know, um, uh, other forms of addressing other forms of inequality, um, other forms of injustices particularly if we think about prison industrial complex, right? Religion is at the heart there. And so religion can play a very vital role and is playing a vital role, particularly when we look at social grassroots movements today. So then is religion getting a bad reputation in terms of thinking about how people are maybe misusing, misrepresenting religion in politics? And how can we take it back then? So I will say, though, just as we have sort of positive, healthy examples, we also have unhealthy examples, right? You know, historically, right? And in our society today. I think in some ways I'm interested in, you know, how, you know, media really privileges the kind of white evangelical, uh, the white evangelical Christian nationalist sort of contingent particularly after January 6th, particularly after Trump, that is in some ways being privileged in kind of social media. And so therefore, other kind of religious social movements that counter the sort of injustices, the racial, economic, uh, gender, uh, sexuality, injustices, inequality, and violence, they don't get the kind of news coverage as the other kind of religious... The extremists always love to take the spotlight, basically, unfortunately. Exactly. So, I mean, this is an example of, uh, you know, this podcast or example of other forms of media that that suggest that there are other, there are varieties of Christianities. There are varieties of religion that are not necessarily being privileged by mainstream media that we need to start attending to. Now you have a new book titled To Know the Soul of a People, Religion, Race, and the Making of Southern Folk. And the book is a history of religion and race in the agricultural South before the civil rights era and recounts how a society of social scientists in Virginia in the late 1800s, how they studied black folklore, focusing on things like superstition and medicine magic. Though that study was short-lived, you argue that it left a lasting impression on the social sciences and the perceptions of black people in America. What was its impact? Yeah, no, that's a great question. And so... Um I cover and I talk about in the book uh, the Hampton Folklore Society. And the Hampton Folklore Society was a part of uh, Hampton Agricultural and Industrial School. 
this is a school that is founded for blacks and also indigenous people in during reconstruction right and so um, this Hampton Folklore Society is a part of the kind of broader kind of Hampton's mission to civilize former slaves as well as their offspring. And so with this uh, Hampton Folklore Society, which was actually founded by a white kind of liberal uh, missionary and educator by the name of Alice Bacon, who was actually the daughter of Leonard Bacon, who was a professor of Yale College, uh, today would be Yale Divinity, as well as pastor over the Congregational Church in New Haven, right? And so um, the Hampton Folklore Society actually comprised of, you know, black students, black students actually, black students and staff affiliated with uh, the Hampton Industrial School, and is actually, as scholars argue, one of the first, one of the first nationally recognized Black folklore societies, right, in in the U.S., particularly beginning in the late 19th century. The Hampton Folklore Society, like other folklore societies, collecting, you know, uh, cultures among indigenous populations, among Europeans and so forth. They're trying to collect and salvage a kind of a cultural past. They're also using folklore to reform black people who are, quote unquote, outside of Christian industrial civilization. And so they're collecting folklore to actually reform what they call the black cabin people, the black poor people who were on the outskirts of Hampton. And you write in the book that, quote, poor people are real. However, ideas about poor populations are invented. Can you elaborate on that? Yes, yes. In some ways, we understand that poverty is a ongoing social reality in the U.S. and abroad. But in some ways, this book is an intellectual history where I am preoccupied with ideas about poverty that shapes perceptions and policies aimed at people who are considered poor, right? And we see through the social scientific study of folk religion that our ideas about poverty are in some ways preoccupied with cultural and behavioral, um, I would say cultures and behaviors that in some ways take away from thinking about poverty on a kind of social and structural basis. And so we're interested more so in a set of bad behaviors, bad conduct, rather than thinking about the social structures that in some ways contribute to one's impoverished state. And so it's a kind of a history that traces America's preoccupation. Anytime we talk about poverty, anytime we talk about welfare, we talk about people who don't want to work. People who are having, you know, um, 
wrong bad sex, meaning sex outside of marriage. We're talking about people who are in some ways mismanaging money, dropping out of school. And it focuses and blames actually the people who are undergoing poverty and not necessarily entities that contribute to the structures that contribute to, in some ways, the kind of disproportionate number of people who are impoverished in quote-unquote advanced society in America and also beyond. And you also said that to know the soul of a people, your book, it highlights how stubborn Protestant moral and cultural frameworks continue to guide our discussions of poverty and welfare in American politics. How are Protestant frameworks influencing discussions of poverty in America today? What my book shows is that, you know, these liberal social scientists, their study of quote-unquote black folk religion was animated by what they took to be good religion or good Christianity, right? And in some ways, it is good Christianity that is, in, that is more in line with modern progress. And so these are kind of like they're espousing ideas of liberal, liberal Protestantism. In other words, these religious beliefs that support uh, science, rationality, that support sort of in some ways individuality. And so when they're thinking about folk religion, this is in their minds bad religion that doesn't necessarily um, align black people with modern industrial progress, right? And so I say this to say that what's baked into their understanding of good religion that is shaping how they're classifying the religion of the folk or religion of the black poor is in some ways animating how they're understanding poverty. There's a certain kind of like religious, moral, and cultural frameworks that distract us from thinking about the real kind of structural inequities that are in some ways contributing to abject poverty of black and lower class populations today. I'm curious your thoughts on the current state of religion among black Americans. What do Black American religious communities consider to be essential religious issues? Yeah. So, I mean, you know, on one level, Black people and, you know, Black religious communities, they have, you know, and represent, I should say, a variety of social, political, and theological beliefs, right? Um, Just like any other group. But I do think there's certain political issues, um, that concern many, uh, let's just say for now, black churches, such as voting, such as policing, you know, Mm -hmm. such as, you know, the economy, such as in the aftermath of COVID, healthcare. Now, obviously, we're in like a very polarized climate. Um, Is there one thing that you see that can bring people together, one issue when it comes to, let's say, white Christians and black Christians or even beyond Christians. After you've been studying and especially analyzing how history has affected the current situation, are there any historical examples of how people were able to come together across 
these uh, seeming divides? Yeah, this is in terms of my book, what the social scientists are trying to do. And I mean, we see examples of this today, right? Um, where they're trying to use the economy or they're trying to use class to mobilize people across the racial divide, right? And in some ways, you know, whether we're thinking about, you know, Occupy Wall Street, whether we're thinking about, you know, uh, you know, uh, Black Lives Matter and the different races actually working together, right? Um, but particularly with the example of Occupy Wall Street, this issue of the economy, this issue of the wealth gaps, this issue of, you know, um, you know, the income disparities as the cost of living gets high, trying to use class to mobilize a particular kind of voting block across the kind of uh, racial divide. My book shows, though, that when we talk about class, we can never get away. And Bernie Sanders had to learn this, right? When we talk about class or trying to mobilize working class people, we can never divorce that, particularly in American political history, from race, right? Mm -hmm. um, race formation always plays a role in how people understand themselves as it relates to the economy. And I hope we do have a kind of multiracial you know, working class party or working class social movement, which we do see stuff happening on the ground. But again, they're not prioritized in social media. Thank you so much for taking time out of your busy schedule as you are starting at YDS um, for, for speaking with us about a variety of different topics. So thanks so much for sharing your insights. No, thank you for having me. I'm glad to be here.